Wild Hope singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He hit your face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back to Man. It is the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. I'm your host, James Chapman, the most smelly with the most belly. And uh, let's just get it out of the way right at the beginning. Let's address the elephant in the room. I know you're sitting there and thinking it. I know you're sitting there thinking, man, James's voice sounds really sexy this week and uh, really deep and almost monoto- monotonal. Um, and on all three accounts, you wouldn't be wrong, uh, but it isn't for an unfortunate reason. I am sick yet again. The immune system gods have struck me down. Uh, I'm getting punished for something. I swear to Christ, Sheila, I really am. Um, no, I don't know. I've got something. It's going around in uh, my area. <laughs> Everyone's getting sick. I don't think it's COVID. I think it's COVID's little bastard cousin or twin or something weird like that. But yeah, if you're if you're wondering why my voice sounds so uh, smooth and sexy and deep, uh, it's because I'm sick. And you know, I I feel terrible. <laughs> I feel awful. I'm tired. I'm dizzy. Um, but the one benefit of having whatever this is. Um, that I am uniquely able to benefit from is uh, it, it makes my voice sound great. It's great for podcasting. I think I've, I feel like I get sick so often. I probably have spoken about this before, uh, but I, I, I wish there was some kind of invention like a tablet or a pill or something that I could just, you could just take and it would uh, just make your voice sound like you get sick temporarily. You just get the voice from the sickness. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty sick. I have shin splints. That's pretty dog shit. I don't know if you've ever had that. I'm doing, um, I'm sure you guys know the, the musical, uh, you know, Billy Elliot, but the little kid who does a dance, um, <laughs> I'm doing Billy Elliot and, um, I'm in that and I have to tap dance and I'm not good at it. Uh, don't, don't, uh, don't expect me to be good at everything. I'm not good at that. Um, but yeah, one of the unexpected side effects of, um, tap dancing in Billy Elliot is I now have shin splints, which it sounds like bits of sh- like, what, when I first heard, when someone said, oh, you probably have shin splints, I'm like, oh, does that mean that, like, bits of my shins, like, like, uh, shards of my shin bones, my ankles have sort of coming off and are digging their way into my muscles, and that's not it, it's just an inflammation of, like, the, the muscle tissue around the, t- the tibia, I think, that's the bone, I think, I'm not a bone expert, guys, okay, god damn you, I'm not a bone man, I'm not the bone king, um, what's going on oh in addition to like all that if you hear this that's my little uh thermos full of ice water because it's it's fucking it's hot right now it's 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 37 it's 38 degree i just checked that it's 38 degrees where i am right now and it's not a very cold house 38 degrees celsius for my um you know metric no no is it is Celsius on the metric system? I'm so tired. No, it's not. Um, but I want to do the quick conversion for you in my head. Definitely not opening an app called Units Plus to try and figure it out. Um, uh, 38 degrees in Celsius is 104, 100 and 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. 
That's that's what I'm dealing with. So if you're an American and you're like, oh, it's 100 degree heat out there, that's what we're going through. Um, but it's Australia. It's you know it's Australia, El Nino. We're having one of those El Ninas, as Trump would say, uh, and uh, it's it's sweltering and hot. So yeah, if you if you hear any ice or any <laughs> sucking of straws, that's me I'm trying to not die of heat. Uh, but you know. What's not hot? Um, Canada. Mm, bad segue. Today we're going to Canada, guys. We're talking about a fairly, you know, recent story uh, that occurred in Canada. Uh, a man who was killed by a wolf. Uh, presumably, was he? Ooh, twist. Uh, no, he, he probably, he very much likely was. Uh, so today we're talking about the death of Kenton Joel Carnegie, and uh, at the outset, I, w- I do say this a lot when it's a when it's a recent story. Um, I probably don't say it as much as I should. Uh, I, you know, the a, a young man, a young man did die, uh, and he has a family who is alive and well. And uh, you know, this happened like ten years ago, more than ten years. Oh, less than. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got the script up. It doesn't matter. I'll tell you later. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, at, at the front of this, express like, you know, sympathy and uh, empathy and just, and make it, you know, I'm not making fun of, if at any point I make silly jokes, <laughs> it's just because I'm a silly little goose. Uh, it's not because, of, it's not for any um, lack of, yeah, empathy for the, for Kenton or his or his family. Uh, yeah, it, it is it is quite a sad story, um, and we, and we will get into it in a moment. Um, but first, I want to acknowledge today's source. Uh, so I I've wanted to do this story for a while. I've known of this story um, for for a really long time. Um, there's a lot of inf- the, what the reason I haven't done it is because there's um, so much. There's a lot of information out there. Actually, um, there's a lot of uh, you know sources to go through and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what I wanted to, to do, like I, I read, a, I, I read an article about it probably a few years ago and was like, that'd be a good story. I kind of got a little bit overwhelmed actually by the, uh, by the amount of information there is. It's, it's uh, and a lot of that is to do with a person by the name of Dr. Valerus Geist. Um, they wrote an essay and it's up on, um, <clears throat> booncrockett.org, Boone and Crockett Club pioneers of conservation um yeah so that's the primary source today and um i'm gonna be completely honest at the outset the essay is so comprehensive and good and great that a lot of this is i'm i'm (laughs) i have changed some stuff up i'm virtually gonna just be like reading the essay to you because it's such it's such a valuable source um so We'll get into that, but I just want to say at the out front, um, that is the that is the main source for the episode today. Um, and please don't sue me, uh, Doctor Valarius Geist or or Boone and Crockett Club dot com, Boone Crockett dot org. Um, yeah, it, it's it's um, <laughs> I just don't want to get sued. I don't want this episode to get taken down because I'm I'm you know leaning so heavily on this essay, but it is it is so comprehensive and I, like. There's no point in um, in muddling around that. It is it, it is great. So we will stop and start. But yeah, just so you know, that's primarily where this is all coming from. So I think that's all the uh, sort of housekeeping stuff I have to get out of the way at the beginning. So uh, yeah, let's let's uh, talk about the unfortunate death of Kenton Joel Carnegie.
So, Kenton Joel Carnegie. He was a 22-year-old Canadian geological engineering student from Ontario, Canada, on a work term from the University of Waterloo. He died in a wild animal attack whilst he was walking near Points North Landing in Saskatchewan, Canada. Waste dumping had attracted black bears and timber wolves to the region, timber wolves being a subspecies of the North American grey wolf. Now, according to a trucker who had said that he'd met Carnegie in a cafeteria a few days before his death, he had passed around close-range photographs of large wolf pups that had approached him during walks in the nearby woods, and he'd been warned by the trucker that such encounters were extremely dangerous. A bush pilot also said that he'd warned Carnegie about an incident in which adult wolves had menaced others walking outside the camp, but Carnegie's family said he would not have taken the risks if he was warned. After reviewing evidence, which included wolf tracks left around the body, the finding of the coroner's inquest was that Carnegie indeed had been killed by a pack of wolves. If this is true, it would make his death one of the first verified cases of fatal wild wolf attacks in North America. Now, there have been a few documented uh, wolf attacks on humans in North America, but not as many in comparison to wolf attacks in Europe or Asia. Uh... And relatively few attacks uh, by other larger carnivores. In fact, I could only find records of about 30 fatal stories in which uh, wolves had killed people that were confirmed in all of history. And that is an episode we will go through um, on another date. Kenton Joel Carnegie's death is probably one of the most well-known and documented of these cases of wolf-human fatal contact. So, here's what happened. The story takes place in Points North Landing, in the province of Saskatchewan, Canada. It's a service center for uranium mines. Prior to the attack on Carnegie, timber wolves and black bears had fed on camp refuse and were seen often nearby. Ten months prior to Carnegie's death, a lone wolf attacked a 55-year-old uranium miner named Fred Desjardins. Desjardins? (coughs) Sorry, I'm dying who was jogging home from work in Lake in Key Lake. He wrestled with it until a busload of his colleagues arrived to rescue him by frightening the wolves away. They subsequently took Fred to a nearby medical facility. A few hours later, Key Lake Airport medical workers airlifted the man to Sask- uh, Sask- Saskatoon's Royal University Hospital, where he had a series of rabies treatments. After the assault on this man, Camco built an electric fence around Key Lake's landfill to prevent further predatory animal assaults on miners. Authorities hunted and shot the wolf that attacked the man, and they tested the wolf's bodies for rabies, but the test was negative. Kenton Joel Carnegie was in a university co-op program that allowed students to gain first-hand experience from visits to mining operations. He was flown into Points North Landing, a mining camp close to the Wollaskin Lake in North Saskatchewan. Bad weather had delayed his return. On November the 4th, 2005, Todd Svarskov, a experienced bush pilot, and Chris Van Gelder, a geophysicist, two of Kenton's camp companions, had an encounter with two aggressive wolves on the airfield close to camp. The two young men beat back the attack, photographed the wolves, and told everyone in the camp. The incident was apparently belittled, 
Even though two days before Kenton was killed, the young men were warned at a dinner at a local lodge by an experienced northerman, Bill Toppington, <clears throat> or Bill Topping, sorry, who was a part-time car pilot, uh, that is a guide who leads heavy trucks through the labyrinth of dirt roads in North Saskatchewan. He admired the pictures and told his guests that they were actually lucky to be alive. In the fall and early winter of 2005 at Point North Landing, there was evidence for circumstances facilitating an attack on humans by wolves, followed by the predictable exploratory attack by wolves on November 4th. That is, the events leading to the death of Kenton Joel Carnegie follow the pattern predicating attacks on humans as described for wolves and earlier for urban coyotes targeting children in parks. It is a pattern of increasing observations of and habituation to humans, followed by boldness and attacks on pets and livestock, followed by closing in and testing humans with skirmishes prior to the fatal attack. Both species of canids explore alternative prey in much the same manner. Unfortunately, nobody recognized the growing danger. Moreover, how wolves target people was not a question asked by current wolf biologists, probably due to the overriding belief that wolves do not attack people. Four wolves at Points North Landing had begun feeding on camp refuse that fall and were habituating habituating increasingly to human activities. November 8th, 2005, at about 3.30pm, Kenton Carnegie notified Van Gelder that he was going for a walk along the lake and expected to return 90 minutes later at about 5pm. Kenton had gone to the west shore of Wollaston Lake before (coughs) before when going fishing. This area is isolated and not open to unauthorized traffic. At about 6.15pm, because Kenton failed to appear for dinner, Chris Van Gelder and Todd Vaskoff began to search for him, but they could not find him within the camp boundaries. Todd saw Kenton's tracks in the fresh snow leaving the camp, but not returning. About 6.30pm, Chris and Todd and Mark Eichel, co-owner of the camp, drove out in a truck searching for Kenton. Fresh snow had fallen, and the party followed the clear footprints which headed south from camp. Because of the fresh snow, the tracks were easy to follow. Kenton's tracks headed towards the shore of the lake. When Eichel and his companions encountered wolf tracks, they reversed. They headed back to camp for Eichel to receive his rifle, a more powerful flashlight, and a radio. Now, it's worth noting there were no domestic dogs at North Point Landing, but if they were, they would have brought those as well. The party then drove to a nearby cabin, thinking Kenton might be there, but found nothing including no footprints. They returned by the truck to where they had left off and soon saw that Kenton's footprints left the road and headed down a trail towards the lake. There were wolf tracks on the trail. They saw Kenton's footprints doubling back and found a concentration of wolf tracks. Mark Eichel shone about with the flashlight and saw what he thought was a body. He ordered everyone back to the truck, not wanting the others to see the sight. Neither Todd nor Chris ever saw Kenton's body. On the way back to camp, Mark Eichel called on the radio to Robert Dennis, an employee of the camp, a long-term resident of the North and an experienced hunter. Robert realized something tragic had definitely happened and contacted his wife, Rosalie Tassani Berseth, who was the local coroner at Wollaston Lake, and asked her to contact the Royal 
Canadian Mounted Police. Next, Chris Van Gowler called the Mounties from camp and the company office was notified. At about 7.30pm, Eichel and Berseth returned by truck to check on Kenton. Eichel believed that Kenton was dead, but he wanted to make sure that his mind was not playing tricks on him and he wanted to get a second opinion. They parked the truck and walked down the ridge on the edge of the lake, noting many wolf tracks. Mark Eichel shone with a flashlight and both could see Kenton's body. They saw exposed flesh and ribs from the belt up. The pants appeared to be on. Eichel and Berseth approached within 30 feet. They stayed only a couple of minutes and returned to camp to await the police and the coroner who arrived at about 7.35pm. Now neither Robert or Mark Eichel ever returned to the body until they went there with the RCMP constable Alfonsi Noe and coroner Rosalie Tassani Berseth. Kenton's body had been moved from where Mark Eichel and Bob Berseth had seen it two hours earlier. The distance moved was about 20 yards. Officer, Noe hands, Officer Noe's hand-drawn map indicating the body was dragged 20 metres, a distance which he paced out the next day. Now, a little bit of information. Wolves do often move their kills. Records of wolves moving a carcass over a mile do exist. Farmers regularly see this behaviour when their domestic sheep have been hunted, and wolves moving human bodies have been observed many times in history throughout Europe and Asia. When they went back to the body, they realized much more of the body had been consumed. There was no clothing down to the knees. Asked by Constable Noe what had consumed the body, Berseth stated he believed it was likely wolves. Asked by Constable Noe what kind of tracks Berseth had seen on location, Berseth replied he had seen only wolf tracks, likely ruling out an attack from a bear or other predator. Now, there had been four wolves running together about camp earlier, a black one, a white one, and two tan grey ones. The four had been seen on the runway close to camp on the day before, on the 7th of November. Berseth also saw three wolves running across the lake towards the kill site at about 7.45am on the morning following Kenton's death, that is, on the 9th of November. Eichel confirmed that four wolves had been seen near the camp and garbage dump site. At about 9.50pm, Constable Noe and the coroner began securing and inspecting the site. Constable Noe took the lead, and the coroner and Bob Berseth and Mark Eichel followed him in single file. Now, moving in single file minimizes disturbances to the original tracks. It's also useful for, uh, yeah, preventing further attacks from wolves. As Constable Noe approached the site of Kenton's body, he saw two wolves near the body. He refers to citing these two wolves repeatedly in his report and in conversations with others. He discharged two rounds from his shotgun into the air to scare away the wolves from the body. Constable Noe noted many wolf tracks on the land and on the snow of the frozen lake. Constable Noe ordered Berseth and Eichel to remain on the trail while he and the coroner went in to examine Kenton's body. Eichel was instructed by Constable Noe to discharge his rifle into the air, as the wolves could be heard in the bushes near the body. Bob Berseth made a fire from the trail, certainly would keep the wolves away. Constable Noe and the coroner examined and photographed the body and surroundings for 40 to 45 minutes. 
Then, Constable Noe called Constable Marion on a satellite phone and advised him of the condition of the body and the wolves in the area, at which point Constable Marion authorised the removal of Kenton's body and the return of the party to Point's North Landing. With the assistance of Eichel and Berseth, the coroner and Constable Noe placed Kenton's body in a body bag, which was tagged by Constable Noe with a time and date. At that time, Constable Noe discovered that his GPS unit was missing and searched the immediate area for the last resting site. He instructed Eichel to ins- ensure that nobody be allowed near or sorry, nobody allowed to enter the area and was assured by Eichel that only Camco employees may use the road between their mine, which was a Cigar Lake mine, and the Points North Landing, and that they'd been instructed not to get out of their vehicles close to the camp. Constable Noe next took down witness statements. The following day, November 9th, 2005, at about 1pm, Constable Noe, Coroner Tassan Berseth and Bob Berseth attended again to the scene in daylight, taking pictures and analysing the scene. Here are their joint results, as summarised by the report by Constable Noe. Number 1. The footprints of Kenton heading south were followed by a wolf who stepped into Kenton's footprints. This wolf had thus cut off Kenton from the camp, as the two wolves had tried to do on November 4th with Chris and Todd. Constable Noe surmised that this wolf was following and possibly stalking Kenton. Number 2. Constable Noe followed Kenton's footprints south past the kill site, which went for a distance of about 60 to 80 metres, undisturbed by the previous day's activities. Here, Kenton was on the shoreline. Noe surmised that Kenton, at this point inside of camp, may have been trying to get someone's attention at the camp as there was a clear line of sight to camp. Number 3. At this point, wolf tracks converged on where Kenton stood, so that, so says the report by Constable Noe. The wolf tracks were coming from the south along the lake shore. Several wolves approached from the south while one approached from the north. That looks like a hunting strategy executed by the wolves. Since several wolves approached Kenton from the south and one wolf from the north, there must have been at least two wolves involved. He was thus killed by at least three wolves and possibly by all four. Number four, here Kenton's footprints turned back towards the road, that is, up the trail heading north towards the camp. Number five, from here it is 10 to 20 meters along the trail before the snow is disturbed, indicating an altercation. Constable Noe noted the snow was disturbed as if someone was rolling in the snow. Number six, footprints now head across the trail a little ways into the Musag shrub. The footprints indicate that Kenton was now running. He was half on the trail, half on the muskeg. There were lots of disturbances in the snow. Number seven. From here, it is a short distance north to the kill site where the body was first discovered along with pieces of clothing. When seen a second time, the body was dragged about 20 yards away. And number eight. In between where the two sites were, the tracks indicated that Kenton stood and shed a lot of blood. Photos indicate considerable blood loss. A third place indicates that he stood and dripped blood. The search party found the body there. Constable Noe photographed the area until the battery of his camera gave out and he collected all clothing pieces that were not previously found. Noe received a CD with photos of Van Gelder and Schwafkoff's Inter- interaction with the two wolves on the previous Friday, November 4th, from the Christie Oster- from Christie Oysterick 
and expressed surprise that neither had informed him of that attack. Two conservation officers from the Saskatchewan Game Department, Kelly Crane and Mario Gaudet, arrived on the 10th of November in order to do their investigation. They stated in their report, Officers investigating the site and... Officers investigated the site and found numerous wolf tracks in the area. No other large animal tracks could be found. In the light of what was to follow, it is important to examine the nature and qualifications at tracking of the eight witnesses who were on the scene after Kenton was killed. The author of the essay has done a great job at this. So, the first and one of the most important witnesses was Mrs. Rosalie Tassani Berseth who was not only the coroner for the Wollaston Lake, but also the chief of the Hatchet Lake Band and the director of education. She has three university degrees, is working on her doctorate in sociology, and has a long career in public service. She grew up in the northern bush, where her family was still nomadic and fully dependent on their skills at hunting, fishing, and trapping, and was tutored by her father in tracking. This articulate, humorous grandmother still goes hunting. Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable Alfonso Noe is, like Chief Tassani Berseth, a native and a hunter and a long-standing northern resident. He produced a detailed report based on his and Miss Tassani Berseth's on-the-spot investigations, as well as questioning all witnesses to the scene. The next witness was Robert Dennis parentheses Bob Berseth, who is the husband of the coroner and an employee at Points North Landing. He has 17 years of experience in the region. He is married to the coroner and the chief, Mrs. Rosalie Tassani Berseth. He's an avid hunter. He killed the two wolves at the dump after the Kenton attack. He shoots bears that become a nuisance at the camp as well. Todd Svaskoff, aviation officer and a well-known bush pilot, employee of the Sanders Geophysics Ottawa, working out of the camp. He testified at the coroner's inquiry that he had warned Kenton against going out. Mark Eichel was the co-owner of the camp, which is called Points North Landing, and is an experienced outdoorsman and hunter. He shot the third wolf, about 250 to 300 yards away after the Kenton attack. He claimed he would have seen a bear if it had been in the area. None had seen one for at least a month. Chris Van Gelder, geophysicist and employee of Sanders Geophysics, Ottawa, who was also working out of the camp. And finally, Kelly Crane and Mario Gaudet, who were conservation officers, they also examined the site on the 10th of November. And they noted that any black bear moving in or out of the site near Kenton's body would have been detected by the crisp snow by these men. Now, you might be wondering why the author of this essay uh, brings up the, you know, the fact that it was not a bear. No bear tracks were found. It was definitely a wolf. Later in the story, we'll get to it in a moment, uh, some people um, tried to dispute the claim that it was a wolf. They were, I guess you would call them wolf activists. And they don't like the idea of wolves being responsible for this attack uh, because they think it undermines the wolf's sort of... Uh, what they view as the wolf's innocence. I, I, I think they want to do PR for the wolves, basically. And they try to pin this on a black bear. Now, the tracks and signs at the scene were examined by two senior native persons, highly experienced by tracking, by two experienced northern hunters, by two conservation officers, by a seasoned bush pilot, and a highly trained physical scientist, Schwarzow, Van Gelder, and Eichel, 
who were both who were first on the scene identified only wolf tracks. They were vindicated in this opinion by Bob Berseth, as he insisted he only saw wolf tracks as well. He in turn was vindicated by RCMP Constable Noe and Coroner Berseth, who not only only saw wolf tracks, but also saw and heard wolves so close to Ken's body that Constable Noe fired his shotgun twice to spook the wolves away and asked Mike Eichel to discharge his rifle. Conservation officers Crane and Gordette also only saw wolf tracks. In addition, Constable Noe and Coroner Sasani Berseth not merely identified wolves as the killer of Kenton Carnegie, but deciphered the track patterns left by wolves showing a classic hunt pattern by wolves. The wolf pack had split and the wolves approached their prey from the back as well as from the front, cutting off any possible retreat. They documented multiple attacks and a progression of the victim to the final collapse. Moreover, four wolves had been seen for weeks habituating to camp activity and ran in anticipation towards garbage disposal units and tore apart plastic garbage bags in the presence of humans, observed humans, and staged an unsuccessful attack on two camp residents four days before they killed Kenton Carnegie. Then came a big surprise. The Saskatchewan coroner asked for the case to be re-examined by scientist Dr. Paul Paquette and a wolf researcher, Professor Ernest G. Walker of the University of Saskatchewan. Before their confidential report was submitted, Paquette informed the popular news media that he recognized immediately that a black bear had killed Carnegie. In National Wildlife, the February-March 2007 edition, in an article entitled Sexy Beasts by Paul Tolley, we read, Wolves remain a boogeyman today, as illustrated by the death of a Canadian man in 2005. When Kenton Carnegie's mangled corpus was discovered, by the way, not a very tasteful way to put this, when Kenton Carnegie's mangled corpus was discovered near a remote Saskatchewan mining camp off Points North Landing, the Royal Canadian Mountain Police immediately blamed wolves. This story made headlines around the world. But when noted wolf biologist Paul Paquette of the World Wildlife Fund investigated, he recognized immediately that a black bear had indeed killed Carnegie. The problem was bias. Right from the start, Paquette says. When I looked at the photos, I immediately saw bear tracks, Paquette says. The National Geographic Society sent a team to film and reenact Kenton's death. Dr. Paquette acted as a consultant. Kenton's parents were so upset by the resulting quote-unquote documentary that they wrote a letter of protest to the society. Mrs. Tassani Berseth told the author of this article that she was so upset and offended by the manner that the camera and interview crew of the National Geographic had treated her. She told the author that she tried to speak to Paul Paquette at the inquest, but that he would not speak to her, um, that he would not speak with her or even make eye contact with her. Victims of the wildlife tragedies in North America tend to be blamed for the events, and it was not different in Kenton's case. It greatly upset Kenton's family, as did the brazen whitewash of wolves that could not only mislead the public, but also the judiciary. Distraught by the treatment they had received and the misattributions to their son, Kenton's parents turned to four scientists and asked them to do independent investigations. Three of these scientists agreed. Mark McNay, a senior biologist from Alaska. Brent Patterson, a seasoned scientist from Ontario with considerable wolf experience, and the third was Dr. Valerius Geist, who was the author of the essay of which this episode heavily leans upon. 
All three of these individuals wrote reports concluding that Paquette's claim that a bear had killed Kenton Carnegie was untenable and that wolves had killed Kenton Joel Carnegie. Paquette claimed in the eyewitness accounts that they were unreliable and biased and unsupported claims contrary to all evidence. Paquette, examining the photographs of the site as photographed by RCPM Constable Noe, mistook the tracks of wolves heading across the overflow on the lake ice, where wolves stepped through a thin layer of snow resting on water, which consequently, which consequently distorted their tracks as bear tracks. Now, Dr. McNay and Dr. Geist were both very familiar with wolves. He is, of course, from Alaska, and the author of this article was from Finland. All concluded that from the tracks in question, as photographed by Constable Noe, they were wolf tracks, and McNay demonstrated that the pattern of the distorted tracks on the overflow were of a regular caned trotting pattern, and quite different from the track patterns left by bears. That is... Three independent peer reviews confirmed what eight eyewitnesses on the site had observed. It was wolves, not a bear. Paquette claimed that a number of forensic signs identified the responsible predator was a bear. And these were, number one, that wolves do not drag their prey from the kill site but consume in situ. Yet Kenton's body, he claimed, had been dragged some 50 paces. In North America, the experience of wolf biologists studying free-living wolves in the wilderness areas is that wolves feed on their prey in situ. In the author's personal experience with wolves uh, killing their neighbor's sheep is that they always move their kills into cover about a mile from the sheep's pasture. The European accounts of how wolves deal with prey, livestock, and humans included is that they carry or drag into cover away from where they attack their prey close to human hab habituation. The resolution of what appears as opposites is quite simple. Wolves undisturbed consume their kills on the site. Wolves disturbed or close to danger move their kill. And that's what happened in the Kenton Carnegie case. The wolves fed at the kill site till they were disturbed by the first search party. When the second party arrived, the wolves had dragged Kenton's body about 20 meters, not 50 meters. Paul Paquette is quoted in the National Wildlife article on page 30 saying, the clothes had the clothes and skin had been stripped away, indicating the so-called banana peel eating technique common to bears, which uh, you would have seen on TikTok with that bear killing that fucking salmon. It's awful. The author posits, how could Paquette possibly know that? How many clothed human bodies handled by wolves have ever been available for examination in North America? Moreover, Paquette ignores that four wolves in question had plenty of experience ripping apart and peeling back the plastic of plastic garbage bags saturated with human smell in order to reach discarded camp food. Now, the wolves had not consumed the victim's liver and heart, which is also very uncharacteristic of wolves. Quote from the National Wildlife, Carnegie's heart and liver, the most desirable morsel for wolves, Paquette says, were left intact. Internal organs had been consumed, namely the ones surrounded by fat. And that fits with the author's own observations on how wolves, undisrupted by humans, uh, scheduled on their feeding of sheep they killed, fat first. Paquette did not take into account that wolves had been disturbed twice and were not able to finish with the corpse. Furthermore, on page 48 of Will Graves' book on the Russian experience with wolves, a Russian scientist reports that, that wolves, in feeding on a freshly killed moose, the heart, lungs, and liver had not been touched. Dr. Carlo Negrin from Finland made similar findings. Uh, 
However, all forensic science of a bear presumed that the bear was standing or moving in about 1.5 inches of fresh snow. For instance, if a bear had peeled away the clothing, then the bear must have had his paws on the ground in the snow. Also, the bear must have moved in on the kill site, leaving tracks, dragged the body away, leaving tracks, ran away when the first search party arrived, leaving tracks, returned to the area, leaving tracks, and then left again when the second party arrived, again, leaving tracks. And the bear would have done so all on land. There would have been massive bear track signs of multiple entries and exits and the massive trampling around of the body. It is clear from all photos and all forensic evidence that there were no bear tracks. A Finnish colleague spontaneously did identify a lonely fox track beside the the wolf tracks. And the question has to be asked, if they were able to find a fox track in all that snow... And the the foxes are very small. How could they possibly have missed something as massive as a bear? All the forensic signs pointing to bear as proclaimed by Paquette are thus misidentifications, as the only bear that could have left such signs at the side of the tragedy must have been suspended in mid-air, as none of his paws reached the telltale snow. Furthermore, Paquette's repeated insistence that his approach alone was in the spirit of methodology and science was shown... uh, and was supported by superior evidence, has demonstrably no basis, as shown by three peer reviews and the coroner's inquest. Moreover, Paquette failed to notice that the wolves involved were not merely habituating, but were targeting people as prey. Wolves do this in the very same manner as a coyote does in an urban park when targeting a child. Both canids explore humans very cautiously. And then over a protracted time period before mounting the first attack, exploratory attack, uh, which two wolves had done four days before Kenton's death, ironically, while coyote biologists recognize that smaller coyotes will target people as prey, those studying free-living wolves were denying that wolves were a danger to people. While the behavior of wolves thus signaled a disaster waiting to happen, nobody recognized it as such even after the failed wolf attack on Vengelder and Schwarfkov four days prior to the attack on Kenton. The belief in the harmlessness of wolves was firmly entrenched. The coroner ruled that only one expert witness would be allowed to testify on behalf of the Carnegies, and they chose Mark McNay. After listening to an eyewitness at the scene, Paul Paquette and the presentation by Mark McNay, the six-person jury rejected Paquette's presentation unanimously, despite being assisted by counsel. The jury ruled that the cause of Kenton Carnegie's death was wolves. Kenton Joel Carnegie's memorial reads, Kenton was an honor student in his third year of the Geological Engineering Co-op Program with the University of Waterloo and a graduate of O'Neill College in Oshkawa. Kenton was a man of profound integrity, intelligence, knowledge, and dedication and humor, and he will be deeply missed by all those whose lives he touched. He was a man of science, a brilliant artist, a music aficionado. Kenton had an incredible understanding of the land and an everlasting love of travel and exploration. Kenton is the cherished son of Kim and Laurie, a loving brother of Calvin and Brienne, dear grandson of John and Janine and Lillian Carnegie, dear nephew of Janie and Mike, Roxanne and Johnny, Debbie and Gord, Pam and Ray and Chris and Jamie. He was a treasured cousin of Jessica, Jonathan, Brennan, Rowan, Aidan, Katie, Brett, Sydney, Danny, Richard, 
Avery, Jared, and James. And that's the story, guys. The story of how one man's death at the, well, I was going to say the hands, at the teeth of a pack of wolves uh, turned into a legal spectacle. And uh, it basically came down to PR for, for wolves and bears. We're going to take a break now, guys, and we'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more. Go and do a wee. Bye. And we are back, guys. I hope you enjoyed that story, and thank you again to the, uh, what was it, the Boone, <laughs> the Boone Conservation, what was it, let me find that website again for you, the, uh, the <laughs> Boone and Crockett Club, that's right, booneandcrockett.org, thank you again to them uh, for the essay which this uh, episode was based off, uh, fantastic, honestly, uh, by Dr. Valarius Geist, uh, that was from 2009, <laughs> that article, so the death occurred in 2005, um, so yeah, nearly 20 years ago. Um, but still, you know, really, really sad. Um, there's so much information about it. It's, it's, it's just, it is a tragedy. That's, that word's, you know, thrown around a lot. Um, but, you know, it is. It's, it's such a tragedy when some, a young person loses their life. Um, it seems like Kenton was a, you know, avid outdoors person and he knew what he was doing. Um, I saw a lot of, like, articles kind of blaming him, um, which is like, I think I've been guilty in the past of doing that too. There are activities that you can do that put you in more risk. And I guess going for a walk near sundown, although, you know, 5 p.m., 6 p.m. in Australia in certain times of the year, that's, that's you know, sunset. But in the north of the, the planet, um, the days are longer. So, you know, maybe it wasn't as dark as I'm thinking it was. Um, and he was just going for a walk in the middle of the afternoon. So, you know, it's, it's hard to blame someone for just taking a walk in nature because that's something we should all be allowed to do. Um, yeah, just tragic. And it, it is a very interesting, you know, plot twist that someone tried to, you know, reverse the decision of the coroner um, to say that a bear had committed the attack, not wolves. Seemingly because that person is a member of an organization who have dedicated themselves to restoring the public image of wolves. Um, I thought it was really interesting that, um, that, that I, I don't have this misconception. The conception that, um, that the wolves don't attack humans seems very false to me. The, uh, we know wolves have attacked people in Europe for thousands of years. The Beast of Gévaudan killed dozens of people. And, um, that was most likely a wolf as well. The, the, the wolves of Saison in France. There's so many, you know... Stories of wolves attacking people. I would imagine that there's a lot of um, stories from like Native Americans as well of um, wolves attacking and killing people. But you know, th- there is a list of uh, of uh, wolf attacks. We will go through that another day. Um, but yeah, interesting story. You know, doing the research for this, um, I, you know, I went on YouTube and had a look at some videos. There's a couple that I found very distasteful. Actually, there was. Um, it was like recounting moment to moment Kenton Joel Carnegie's last, you know, moments alive. Like, he saw the wolves and he panicked and he said this and he did this. And there's just no way you could ever know that. We don't know what he was feeling or thinking in the last moment. I just find it very disingenuous and kind of very um, morally, morally ambiguous to make, you know, YouTube commentary. I know that, like, true crime is in this weird nebulous place at the moment where it's like, is it ethical, is it not? 
Um, we had all the stuff with, you know, the My Fair Murder Girls kind of getting in trouble and, you know, there's stuff going down on a lot of true crime podcasts. Is it ethical to create content based on the suffering of others? Um, and it's a question, you know, it's a valid question. I don't know the answer. Um, it's something I do. I make content based on the death of other people from animals. Um, and it's something I wrestle with. But then I look at what other people are doing. Like that YouTuber that was like, yeah, stepping through moment by moment every emotion the guy was feeling when he died. Um, that's that, To me, that's very ethically dubious. Like, you don't know what was in his head. You're just making it up. At least with this episode, for example, I'm just reading off an essay of someone who was intrinsically involved in the story. So, yeah, very interesting. Okay, guys, we're going to talk about the scratch of the day now. Scratch of the day time, yay! Scratch of the day, of course, the segment of the show where we look at articles in the news and we talk about them. And I actually had an Instagram message. We've had a few Instagram messages this week. It's been delightful. Let me pull it up because we had a suggestion for which story to cover. We also had um, we had someone who uh, has a story themselves. It's like a first of the show. Brad, Brad messaged me on fa- on uh, Instagram. I'll read the uh, message. Hey man, great job with the podcast so far. I listen to yours and last podcast on the left mostly. That is fantastic. Last podcast on the left is my favorite. So that's good company to be in. Um, although there, there's, there's a bit of last podcast on the left drama. I don't know if you guys know. But yeah, I'm not going to get into it. But one of them's gone and he got himself in trouble. Okay. Uh, Brad goes on to say, I was wondering if you were going to discuss the somewhat recent shark attack in Egypt. That has to be one of the most brutal shark attacks caught on video alongside the great white shark attack in Australia with that dude who was swimming off the coast last year, posting a link to a random YouTube account which has multiple views of the attack. Thanks, man, and keep up the great work. That was a lovely message to get, Brad. Thank you. And as, uh, you know, said we're talking about it. So I looked it up. It was a Russian guy, apparently, that was killed in June of this year uh, by a shark in Egypt. So we're going to read that story. It's about three months old. It's more than three months old, sorry. So, uh, you know, bit, you know, keep that in mind. We missed this story. Maybe I talked about it in passing, but I don't think we, like, really did an in-depth thing. So this is from theguardian.com, and the article is written by... It doesn't say. Does it say? It doesn't say. Sorry, can't give you credit if uh, you don't put the names. Headline reads, Russian man dies after being mauled by shark off Egyptian Red Sea coast. Authorities close off 46-mile stretch of coastline after a man was attacked by a tire shark near Hurghada. A Russian man has died after being mauled by a shark of one of Egypt's Red Sea resorts, Egyptian and Russian authorities have said. Egypt's environment minister said the man was killed on Thursday after being attacked by a tiger shark in the waters near the city of Hurghada. Authorities closed off a 46-mile or 74-kilometer, for us normal people, stretch of the coastline, announcing it would be remaining off-limits until Sunday. The ministry later said it had caught the shark and was examining it in a laboratory to try and determine the reasons for the rare attack. The Russian consulate in Hurghada identified the man as a Russian citizen but did not give his name. Russia's TASS state news agency said the person killed was a Russian man born in 1999 who lived in Egypt full-time and was not a tourist. 
A video circulating online, purportedly of the attack, shows a man thrashing about in the water before being repeatedly attacked by a shark circling around him, then being dragged under. A diver who arrived at the scene just after the attack said people had rushed to help the victim after a lifeguard from a nearby hotel raised the alarm, but they were not able to reach him in time. A statement posted on its official channel on the Telegram messaging application, the consulate urged Russian tourists to be vigilant when in the water and to strictly adhere to any swimming bans imposed by local authorities. Shark attacks are rare in the Red Sea coastal regions. In 2022, however, two women, one Austrian and one Romanian, were killed within days of each other in shark attacks in Hurghada. Egypt's Red Sea resorts, including Hurghada and Sharm el-Sheikh, boast some of the country's most renowned beach destinations and are popular with, Egypt, uh, with European tourists. Divers are attracted by the steep drop-offs of coral reefs just offshore, which offer a rich and colourful sea life. Egypt, in recent years, has sought to revive the vital tourism sector, hurt by years of political instability, the coronavirus pandemic, and the war in Ukraine. Tiger sharks are a large species that reside in the tropical and temperate waters. They are among sharks most cited in the international shark attack file for unprovoked attacks on humans, along with the great white shark and the bull shark. There you go. Interesting. There you go. I mean, that's yeah, really interesting story. Um... Yeah, yeah, wild. Uh, unfortunate. There you go. Thank you, Brad, for suggesting that. Oh, I will watch the video. Hey, guys, why don't we watch the video together? This is just an ad for Domino's, but I'm going to, like, put, turn it down because they're not paying me for it. So, um, yeah, we'll watch the video. This video, I'll let you know that this is actually pretty difficult to watch. Okay, thanks, Night Dangers. This happened in Egypt. All right, I'm not going to listen to his commentary. I'm just going to watch it. So, uh, oh, interesting. Okay, well... <laughs> The, uh, the YouTube video states that the victim was a Russian tourist named Vladimir Popov. So I may have read the wrong story, because apparently he wasn't a tourist, uh, but he was 23. Which would put, would that, would 23 years old be putting him in 1999? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Maybe this is unrelated, but let's watch a video. Uh, so it's a dude in the water, and he's splashing around. Oh god, his legs went up. He got grabbed by like the top of his body and pulled under. He's back up. And he's swimming to shore. It looks like there's blood in the water. Uh, it does. Look like, oh, okay. We've got the classic dorsal fin going behind him. And those um, dorsal fins are quite rounded. They're not very sharp like a great white shark's would be, um, which is why yeah, a tiger shark might be identified from that. Um, the shark has gone in front of him now. It looks like it's grabbed him again. Uh, the camera is out of focus. Oh, God. The shark looks... Yeah, the shark is munching on him now. It's thrashing in the water with him. It's on its side. He hasn't come up from... The, he hasn't come up to the surface for a while now. He might be gone. A boat has just pulled over. Oh, there's another resort cam. He's not that far out from the... Uh, from the pier. Um, yeah, wow. Brutal. Brutal. Uh... Oh, they've synced the cameras up now, so I can see both at once. Yikes. Oh, yeah. No, he's gone. Yeah. You're right, Brad. That is a... Oh, they've got the shark. They've fished the shark out of the water. That is a brutal story. Wow. Yikes. Uh, yeah, thank you to Brad for sending that in on the Instagram. Another Instagram message I got was from a, a fan, which is lovely. Uh, probably one of the best messages I've ever received. Uh, I'm going to read it to you out loud. I hope he doesn't mind this. He says, um, 
in all caps, Jimbles, good sir. I like that. Jimbles, that's very nice. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll just go by Jimbles from now on. I like that. Um, North American fan from West NC. I believe that's North Carolina, but correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> this is where it gets great, guys. <laughs> North American fan from West NC. There's a fucking black bear eating my trailer. <laughs> I'd love to send you pics and update you on his potentially exploded cranium. <laughs> wild what a fucking nuts thing to say to a stranger but i love it thank you so much um we went back and forth for a little bit he sent me some photos uh basically his trailer the under part of his trailer had been torn apart and he says um that what does he say yeah bro was literally trying to get the trash can from under the bottom of the trailer and he says also by the way north carolina's wildlife office won't trap the bear unless he's harmed someone yeah, absolutely crazy. Made my day seeing that. Fantastic. I did say to him to stay safe as you can. And also, like, I guess try not to blow the head off a bear if you can avoid it. If it's not hurting you. I don't know. It's a crazy world out there, guys. So, <laughs> who knows? I just was very chuffed at that message. It was very, <laughs> it was very random. I loved it. Um, yeah, thank you. I don't know what his name is, but uh, you can follow him. It's, it's, it's Vice's Music Official on Instagram, so maybe music, you music guy, seemed like a music guy to me, um, <laughs> good, anyway, uh, we're, we're running out of time, guys, I was going to do a beastly biography, uh, Brayson from Instagram, one of our day ones, a very interesting, uh, a bit, sorry, not very, I was about to say, a very interesting person, that sounds very mean, no, a very, uh, uh, thoughtful fan of the show who contacts me frequently and often, and I do appreciate it, uh, has suggested the sawfish for a beastly biography, which I think we'll have to get to next week, because I am feeling sick, daddy needs to rest, so we're gonna call it, guys, we're gonna call it, thank you for listening to this episode, as always, if you have any requests for stories, or movies we can watch, or, or, uh, requests for, uh, scratch of the day, news segments we can do, you can always uh, suggest that stuff. I do love it. I really do appreciate it. It, it really makes my day. Sometimes because um, a lot of my listeners are from North America and I'm obviously from Australia. Our time zones don't sync up. So like you guys will be messaging me at like maybe what's like 8 p.m. for you. But it's like in the middle of the workday for me. So sometimes I get a, a message on Instagram and I just go to my co-worker and go, look how cool this is. I got a fan and they've sent me something and it's very it, it, it makes me damn right chuffed and cheesed uh, so yeah you can uh, follow us on Instagram at man is podcast or my own personal Instagram at Jimothy Chaps we also have a Facebook and you can email us at man pod at gmail.com of course the Patreon if you want to give me a little a little bit of cash I'm very poor right now I'm very very strapped patreon.com slash man it is I can buy a sandwich if you donate some money there so please do um, and of course yesterday or today Today, depends on when you're listening to this, uh, it was International Podcast Day, and I did go on my Instagram and ask you to do a few things. I asked you to please follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening, and to also give it a five-star review if you can do so on your preferred podcast app. And the third thing I asked you to do was to have a sexy day, and I do hope you have a sexy day. You are a sexy person, and I love you. Okay, Daddy, Papa needs to go to bed. Uh, thank you for listening. Stay safe out there because, as we know, it's a jungle out there. <laughs> oh, I have a fever. <laughs> <laughs>